listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluk, and today's Friday, the 3rd of June, 2022, and I'm joined here via Zoom by fellow podcasters, Amelia Brock and Lucas Riley from Big Brother, North Korea's Forgotten Prince. We're going to be talking all about that podcast, which is about the death of Kim Jong-nam. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can and to share the episode with someone you love and even someone you hate. Spotify allows ratings, but not reviews. Apple Podcasts allows both. And on YouTube, you can click like and subscribe. Uh, secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. Thirdly, you can follow NK News and myself on Twitter. Uh, for podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or email at podcast at nknews.org. All right, so to introduce my guests today, we have Amelia Brock, senior producer at the School of Humans Audio, and Lucas Riley, the writer, reporter, editor, and producer of Big Brother, North Korea's Forgotten Prince, an eight-part podcast series. First of all, to both of you, welcome on the show, and congratulations on your excellent podcast series. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've heard it twice all the way through uh, in preparing for this podcast. Uh, what reactions have you received from listeners and reviewers? Um, so far, <laughs> pretty good reactions. Most people say that they enjoy the storyline, the kind of the suspense of it, but also that you don't really have to know much about North Korea to enjoy it. Mm. That's probably the biggest compliment that I can receive in that I have received is just people saying, I learned so much. Mm. Um, that really at the end of the day was our goal, was to make this place that seems very foreign to so many people, um, just make a little bit more sense. Yeah. And how did you, what was the, uh, the role division? What did each of you do on the, uh, on the podcast? Well, I was the writer mainly, and Amelia was my editor. And then Amelia was the senior producer and I was kind of her sidekick as her associate producer. And when it came time to do studio time, we had a voice actor read the script. Mm. Um, we both directed her on the delivery. Now, Lucas, had you been following Korean affairs before this story appeared on your radar? No, not at all. Um, actually, I really had, I hate to admit, no interest in Korea whatsoever until the story fell into my lap. Mm. And then really sat with it for 16 months and then started to live and breathe it and kind of become a sponge on all things North Korea. Yeah. And it kind of just kind of traps you that way. Um, my producer, my lead producer at iHeartRadio basically dropped the story and said, are you interested in this? I said, absolutely. Um, and we went from there. And yeah, that was 16 months ago. Ah, so you were actually asked uh, by your producer to uh, to look at it. So it, it lit well, not literally, but it, it figuratively did fall into your lap. Yeah, absolutely. I one of the nice things about being a freelance writer, and one of the terrifying things about being a freelance writer, is that you don't really know what's around the corner. Mm. Um, it, but something like this was a fascinating story to delve into for such a long time. Uh, the, uh, the the story in brief, uh, of course, many of our listeners to the NK News podcast each week are uh, quite the uh, the North Korea geeks, and they'll be quite familiar with the story. But just uh, in brief, there, of course. on the 13th of February 2017, just over five years ago, Kim Jong-nam, uh, the uh, older brother of, uh, of North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un, was killed at Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia. Two women, one from Vietnam and the other from Indonesia, uh, rubbed a liquid on his face that together created the nerve agent VX, killing him in less than an hour. Uh, and Kim Jong-nam was the eldest of the three sons born to Kim Jong-il, and he'd been traveling under a fake name with a fake passport, Kim Chol. 
So how did you decide to approach this project as a, as a podcast? <laughs> well, originally, when I first started working on this, trying to script out an arc, create an architecture of the whole story, mm. uh, we were focused namely on what was the big thing. It was, you know, the murder, the assassination, and then also the trial of these two women. Everyone likes a good courtroom drama. Yeah. And we were in the business of creating something akin to a true crime podcast. Um, and I worked on that and created like a structure for that. And then about a month and a half after I started working on that and built a really nice arc, nice structure of what happened to these women, what happened to Kim Jong-nam, the Assassins documentary came out. Mm. And it's a, it's a fantastic documentary, um, highly recommend it. But it basically tracked the exact arc that I wanted to draw out ah. and kind of had a crisis meeting right. um, with my, my producers. Like, what do we do? Like, we, someone's basically already told this story and they told it well. Um, was it leaked? Was there somebody inside your team who was a mole? <laughs> no, not at all. We waited until it was officially, officially released. Um, and what we decided to do was, uh, well, the documentary does a great job at looking at the assassination and everything that happens after it and we decided well what if we looked at the assassination and everything that happened before it right so that they both work as a complement so instead of looking at the women and the trial and the courtroom drama let's look at the drama that was actually happening in the kim family and that required i realized a load of context that you had to understand the Kim family dynamics, what it's like in the palaces, and then also just what the culture is like in North Korea. And so it, it ended up becoming this giant education for myself and then yeah. hopefully for the listeners about what this country is about. Right. I mean, in eight episodes, uh, each between 45 and 56 minutes long, you uh, really go back to, I guess, 1945 and seek to unravel the story of Kim Jong Nam's life and, and that of his father. Uh, and, and Kim Jong-nam's death in this, uh, in this narrative style. Uh, and, and at some points, we hear what appears to be the voice of Kim Jong-nam in an interview, speaking English about his father, Kim Jong-il. But there's also a lot of acting done in the show. Is this actually Kim Jong-nam's voice, or is this an actor reading some lines that he said? That's a good question. One of them is definitely Kim Jong-nam speaking when he was accosted um, at an airport, which he seems to have been accosted a lot of times by different interviewers, especially yeah. of Japanese interviewers. Um, but a lot of it was voice acting, which Amelia can speak further about. Yeah, I think we try kind of carefully to let you know what clips are real. Mm -hmm. um, and so in episode one, there are a lot of real clips. And so we say that you hear from the Royal Malaysian Police, Inspector Bakar, and you. we say, here's the real Kim Jong-nam in his own words. Mm -hmm. And everything else, potentially, because it came from a written source and there wasn't any audio attached to it, but it was such a significant character. We decided to hire somebody, a voice actor who was actually did the acting from Seoul mm. uh, to voice our Kim Jong-nam. Now, uh, Kim Jong-nam, during his life, he had uh, a, a reputation as a libertine, a, a man who loved excess, uh, wine, women, song, and drugs. Was this a, a deserved reputation? Did, did you find in your research that this was borne out? Compared to probably like the most staid North Koreans, yeah, like what we expect from them. Uh, he was definitely, he liked to party. Um, but also at the same time, my understanding talking to various experts, and we interviewed multiple people 
um, to really give credence and legitimacy to the story was that it was slightly overblown. Mm. Uh, like people, people were saying that he was like losing all of his money playing Baccarat and all of right. that. And he might've just been playing the slots. You yeah. know, he was not as much of a heavy roller as people like to say he was, but also his attitude and his behavior changed over time. In the early 2000s, when he was much younger, he was clearly more outgoing and mm. meeting up with his favorite women and all of that. But after a couple of years, he became a little more, life slowed down for him. I'd like to think that maybe it's because he was trying to raise a couple families or maybe he was just trying to lie low for a while, right. but he, he slowed down. Yeah, I, I spoke to somebody off the record, not on the podcast, who knew him in his later years uh, or knew his family in Beijing in his later years and said that he mm -hmm. seemed to be quite the, uh, the loving father and, and, and didn't mention any of the excesses. You know, uh, it, it's quite a different picture. That's the fascinating thing about the Kim family that I think um, for an American audience where we really only consume stereotypes of what North Korea is, yeah. to hear these stories of each generation of kids, at least when their children were very young, to learn how doting they were, how loving they were, how much mm. they cherished their children, even sleeping beside them um, when they're very young, taking care of them. It's, uh, it really kind of punctures the whole of that whole mythos. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that Kim Jong-nam was the same with his kids. Now, why do you think Kim Jong-nam allowed himself ultimately to be interviewed by Japanese journalist Yoji Gomi, the senior staff writer of Japan Daily, Japan's Daily Tokyo Shimbun in 2012, after first playing hard to get for many years? That's an excellent question. And I think Gomi did an excellent job needling Kim Jong-nam in a way that was very respectful, mm. but still very journalistic. He obviously wanted him as a source. He wanted to be able to talk to him, but he also knew how to play the game in that, you know, you don't go for you don't go for the jugular on that first question. You know, you want to build a relationship with the source. And in the case of Yoji Gomi, it just took upwards of eight years to do that. Um, also, events within North Korea changed, I think, Kim Jong-nam a little bit. He felt a little more willing to speak mm. when his little brother finally took power. Amelia might be able to talk about this more because I can tell you that's her favorite episode. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, do tell us, uh, if you can, Amelia, what were some of the big takeaways from what Yoji Gomi learned? Um, I think that some of the big takeaways that Yoji Gomi learned were kind of what we wouldn't expect to hear from the son of a dictator, which is some criticisms, some pretty sharp criticisms of the way the economy works there, of the way that, you know, the third generation dynasty does not align with the socialism that they purport to, you know, the communism that they purport to represent. Mm. And, you know, I think that uh, even if you might have thought that Kim Jong-nam was a little outside of the system already, that was on the record now. Yeah. And what didn't we also learn through that, that uh, Kim Jong-nam uh, was afraid of, of his younger brother, Kim Jong-un? I don't know if he said so explicitly, but that's the sense that Yoji Gomi got, wasn't it? Yeah, he when he spoke, you could see and hear that he was sort of walking on eggshells. He was much more open with criticizing North Korea as a whole mm. um, and his and his father. He seemed to be OK with he openly admitted to criticizing his father and basically saying, I tell him what I want to tell him. Yeah. Uh, but when the issue of his little brother came up, 
he's like, I basically wish him the best. Yeah. Uh, he was much less critical of his little brother, which, you know, there's some reading of the tea leaves here. Um, why mm. was he doing that? And it's it suggests that he was possibly scared or he might have just been giving his little brother a chance and just being respectful. Right. And did we also learn from that that uh, there was some previous attempt on Kim Jong-nam's life before the ultimately successful one? Multiple. Mm. Multiple, yeah. Our, one of our sources suggested that he had there had been an attempted attack in Europe, I believe mm. it was Austria, in like around 2002 that was thwarted by authorities. And then later, after his little brother took power, or shortly before he took power, there were either raids trying to um, capture him in his villa that he maintained in North Korea, or even one botched attempt to run him over with a car. Mm. There's no smoking gun to say that these actually happened, but we had multiple sources suggest that they did. Um, there's also some written in the public record that they might have happened. So clearly someone had Kim Jong-nam's number. Yeah. Did it look like uh, China was considering him as a potential replacement leader uh, for Kim Jong-un? That's what everybody seems to say. That's another one of those things. And as you know, reporting on North Korea and talking to people who report on North Korea every single day, it's hard to find anything that definitively says, yes, this is what's happening. Mm. Um, it says, yes, this is what China was thinking. This is what uh, Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un is thinking. That's the suggestion. It, clearly, a lot of the stars seem to align. Like, if China was, in fact, funding his security detail mm. or was helping fund his home at all, um, what, what is their purpose for doing that? You know, they have to be getting something out of that relationship. And what would it be? And that would be clearly one of them because Kim Jong-nam obviously has that mythical peck to blood. He's the firstborn to begin with. Yeah. So he has all the stuff that the North Korean people would already readily accept if he were to be installed as a leader. And he was very friendly with China. He was super friendly with his uncle, Jiang Song-tek, who worked very closely with the Chinese. Um, and he believed in Chinese style reform. So the Chinese clearly would have looked at him as somebody who could um, make their situation with North Korea a little bit better. Briefly, how was he, uh, how did it come to pass that Kim Jong-nam was passed over in succession uh, for, in favor of his youngest brother? Well, there's multiple theories for that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Amelia, do you want to run down some of those? Well, I think the the prevailing one that most of our experts cited, but also said is not the case, was the Disneyland event in, mm. what was it, 2001, when he was caught trying to go to Tokyo Disneyland. And I think that was the one where the media really took that as the reason, but it probably wasn't. And I think Lucas will be able to speak better to some of the potential real reasons. The mainly the potential real reasons being um, his time in Europe, you know, did westernize Kim Jong-nam a little bit. And he had ideas that probably didn't jive very well with that of his father, um, particularly his ideas about economics, and particularly his fancy with you know, Vietnam having opened up, China having opened up uh, to his father, believed that this was essentially dangerous talk. And it's much more likely that. That was one of the reasons why he was passed over. Uh, a, a second reason is that he apparently scaled relatively high up 
the latter in North Korea mm. and had to do some things that did not sit well with him, namely um, sending people off to prison camps or basically signing their death warrants. And he didn't enjoy that. He mm. didn't really look forward to it. Um, one of our sources suggested that um, it wasn't Kim Jong-il's choice, it was Kim Jong-nam's choice. He was like, I, I don't feel like I want to do this. And then there's a third theory um, that it was Kim Jong-un's mother essentially manipulated the media and manipulated his father to essentially make Kim Jong-nam look bad. Mm. And in doing so, essentially made him out of the running. Now, it's extremely possible that all three of these are true um, to certain extents. So it's a very complicated place and a very complicated story. Um, the, the economics, the resentful mother-in-law, the stepmother, I should say, and, you know, his squeamishness towards brutality. Now, there were many surprising twists and turns that come up in your podcast uh, about the, uh, the death. And I, I've written down a few of them, but I, I just wonder if, which, which ones come top of mind for both of you, some of the, the surreal big surprises. Hmm. About the assassination itself or? Uh, yeah, about the assassination or, or how we found out things about the assassination or things that happened immediately after the assassination. I think it's interesting that the whole news came out because of the mistake by reporting the death to the South Korean uh, consulate in uh, rather than North Korea and how that, you know, allowed the intelligence services in South Korea to kind of put two and two together that this was not a man named Kim Chol. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great, uh, a great thing there. And, and that's, you know, th throughout history, there've been a number of cases where North and South Korea got confused. I mean, apparently uh, Dennis Rodman agreed to visit North Korea before his manager explained to him, no, that's not the career you want to go to. You know, there's another one, <laughs> a, a famous tale of uh, a South Korean student in Europe who apparently was delivered to the wrong embassy by a taxi driver and was then abducted and taken to North Korea. So this is just one in that long list of cases of people confusing the two Korea's. Yeah, and it has fascinating, that raises just fascinating questions in its own, because if that little mistake hadn't occurred, is this something that North Korea would have swept under the rug? Mm. Something that we wouldn't have noticed? Or is it something that we would have noticed? Because right. that's another theory that we also explore is, you know, North Korea does things for a reason. And oftentimes they actually want to be seen doing it without mm. getting caught doing it um, because they're in the uh, business of sending messages. But this right. little mistake seems to really uh, throw a wrinkle into that. I also like the, the story that. Uh, Anna Fifield tells where when she went to Kuala Lumpur um, that the North Koreans had taken the button off of their doorbell, yeah. the embassy. I really love that detail. Yes. Yes. And also that came out through Anna Fifield's book that uh, Kim Jong-nam had apparently been meeting with a uh, US CIA agent in Malaysia shortly before he was killed. Yeah. And the extent to his liaison with the CIA is unknown. We weren't able to mm. penetrate that circle. It seems to be the case because that's been corroborated by multiple sources. Anna Fifield did it at the Washington Post, and then journalists also at the Wall Street Journal did the same, mm. that he was speaking with the CIA. And there are a number of theories as to why he was doing that. Um, it might have been that he knew that his time was coming up soon and wanted to possibly defect. And so um, getting in, giving out information mm -hmm. might have been a way to help him get out. Or it might have been that he just 
was desperate for money and was being paid for information mm. because his brother had essentially turned off the financial spigot. Yep. And so eventually one of the consequences of that was that he began speaking to foreign agencies. Uh, it's also believed that he was speaking to Korean, South Korean intelligence, as well as Japanese intelligence. So he was, he was spreading it around. So even if it, uh, whether that's the reason he was killed or not, that's still up for um, speculation. Mm. Now, when someone dies of VX, uh, it's it's a horrible death. It's described in some grisly detail in the podcast. But how it's not a, a visibly obvious death that, that it, you know that someone's died from VX. How was that uh, discovered? A Malaysian chemist essentially did uh, did some analysis of his face, did facial swabs, and they were mm. able to confirm that within some time. And then they corroborated that by also swabbing the women who were mm. arrested almost immediately. Mm. Some of that substance also got onto their clothes uh, uh, and they confirmed that it was VX. And I believe he had, he had a, like twice the amount needed to kill a person, which is not very much. It's about a couple of raindrops worth. Right. But th- it's amazing. Even such a small amount, it was still able to, uh, they were still able to find traces of it and, and identify it back. Yeah. Yeah. And the other big twist, of course, was that he was carrying VX antidote in his backpack uh, when he was killed at the airport. So the, the, the question that I really wonder about there is, could he have been saved after the women had smeared the VX on his face, either by using the antidote or if he had had medical treatment fast enough? People say one thing and then some people say the other. Um, and it depends on, I guess, the expert you speak to. But most, the way that he was exposed to VX, I don't know if the antidote would have actually saved him. It certainly was better than nothing. Mm. It would have been worth a try. But the fact that he had an antidote with him that could have possibly prevented his death Mm. suggests to me that he might have even known how he might have been killed. Like, Why else are you carrying around the antidote for VX nerve agent? Do, Do we know that he wasn't also carrying antidotes for other things at the same time? That I'm not sure about. Um, that's that has been um, reported. Uh, the antidote um, that he was also carrying is also an antidote for other nerve agents, not mm-hmm. just VX as well. VX is significantly more potent than a lot of them. Yeah, and it's funny that detail. Um, a lot of the people who work on the podcast worked by episode. You know, Lucas and I were involved in all eight episodes the entire time. Ah. But for somebody who's just handling like a little bit of the audio, yeah. they're getting it episode by episode. And I remember one of the editors texted me when that ep- information was revealed, just saying he had the antidote the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it was funny, even seeing people working on the podcast being, you know, so amazed and surprised by the information. Yeah. And of course, it's easy for us in, you know, at, at this sort of intellectual remove where we're sitting to think, well, you know, why didn't he have the presence of mind to open a backpack and get the stuff out and put it on his face rather than go to the medical center? But, you know, that's that's easy to say when you're not in the moment. Who knows what he was thinking or feeling at the time? Yeah, exactly. And the way he was attacked is, who can predict that, that someone's yeah. wrapping their hands around your eyes and essentially playing a game of guess who or peekaboo yeah. and, you two know. Two young women as well. Yeah, being attacked by two women. Like who, why would you immediately think, oh, I'm being attacked with the ex-nerve agent. But right. it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't really blame him for not noticing. Um, Another funny backstory is that our our host, um, Eden Lee, she 
is also works as an emergency room nurse. So when oh. we revealed this to her for the first time mm. about the VX nerve agent and the, uh, when she was reading the script about um, the antidote, she's like, oh yeah, yeah, we have that at work. Huh. Wow. <laughs> she, she was very familiar with how it worked. Gosh. Uh, how was Kim Jong-nam's body identified? <laughs> with, <laughs> Amelia, do you want to? <laughs> well, I think that's uh, a question that no one really truly has the answer to. And it's something we kind of play with in the podcast that mm. we don't really know. But we, we pose a few of the theories. Um, one of the main theories was that his son, Kim Han Sol, you know, snuck into the morgue in the dead of night to provide a DNA sample. And, you know, others claim that that's probably pretty unlikely. Um, you know, I had read somewhere in the depths of the internet that the, when he was arrested in 2001, that his fingerprints would have been taken. And it uh. could be possible that the Japanese sent those fingerprints to Kuala Lumpur to be yeah. help identify. But the Malaysian police actually never specified how they mm. uh, identified the body. They only confirmed that they had done it. Interesting. Okay, so they know, but they're not telling. They're not sharing that information. Yeah. I wonder um, if you find the uh, the story that Kim Han Sol snuck into the morgue in the dead of night to identify his father. Is that a, a viable or a believable story, given that um, in the uh, the Suki Kim story about uh, how Adrian Hong and Christopher unspirited Kim Han Sol away from Macau to the Netherlands, that you know it seemed like he was pretty tied up at that time and probably wasn't able to get over to, to Malaysia, or at least if he was, that wasn't mentioned in the story. Yeah, I agree that. It, that story of him being swept into the uh, morgue is probably doesn't hold much water. It's uh, probably just a nice little story. Mm. Uh, it is possible that whoever swept up his son, you know, whether it was in Amsterdam or Copenhagen or somewhere in France, wherever he ended up settling, they, whoever did that might have gotten some kind of DNA sample from him and gotten it to the Malaysian authorities. That's certainly a possibility possibility and it's probably a greater possibility than him flying back to essentially the scene of the crime yeah yes but it is it is notable that the media still thought that that was a possibility because as byfield notes she said that you know any kid who kind of looked like kim han soul <laughs> who was arriving in in malaysia was suddenly hounded by the media which kind of echoes those uh times when a uh a chubby Asian man arrived at Beijing airport or Macau airport and was hounded by the media for being Kim Jong-nam many years previous. <laughs> you know, the history repeats itself a little bit there. Do, you, do either yeah. of you want to speculate on where Kim Han Sol might be now? I mean, if, if the Suki Kim story is correct, that he was uh, mm -hmm. spirited away by the CIA at Schiphol airport in Amsterdam before he managed to reach the arrivals hall and before he managed to to meet the people that uh, Adrian Hong and or Christopher An had set him up uh, to meet. Um, where do you think he is now? Would he, could he be, in fact, much closer to either of you in the United States than he is to uh, me here in South Korea? Um, and I will, I will like to add a little, it is Sung Yoon Lee, I think, is the one who tells us that story. Oh, Sung, Yoon, Sung Yoon Lee uh, tells us the story, but there's a New Yorker story of, written by Suki Kim about mm -hmm. the same, same uh, so you are both correct. <laughs> ah, did, did, so did Song Yun Lee have that information independently? I, I assumed he was reta retelling the New Yorker story. He told it like he knew it off the back of his head when he spoke to us so casually. Mm. Um, if he knew the Suki Kim story, he must have memorized it. <laughs> 
Hmm. But uh, but regarding uh, his uh, the location of Kim Han's soul, we have no indication. I have no clue. Um, if I were to make a guess, it would probably be a place where he's fluent in whatever language uh, that place speaks, yeah. which speaks well to the United States, frankly, because uh, he passes for an American accent really mm. well. Um, he speaks English flawlessly, and his accent for an American is very close to an American. So he could pass here. There are other people in the Kim family who have defected, who are living somewhere in the United States. I believe it's Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il's uncle and aunt are living here. Um, and uh, I know Anna Fifield one time did a profile of them. She like met them in Central Park in New York City and um, walked around and talked. So there is a history of having Kim royalty in the United States, yeah. but I have no clue. And if I did have a clue, I probably wouldn't say. <laughs> right. And also, when the uh, kidnapped South Korean direct, film director and movie star, uh, Shin Sang-ok and Che Sung-hee, when they defected uh, from or escaped from North Korea through Austria, they first spent several years living in the United States. Yeah, yeah. It's... So there, there certainly is a precedent for that, as you say. What about the, uh, the Kim Jong-nam's other family, his other you know, he's his uh, second wife or partner and, and uh, children that were based in Beijing. Were you able to find any clues about their whereabouts? No, we haven't. And that's actually one of the questions we raised at the end was, you know, we have this really exciting story about Kim Han Sol and his mm. family trying to escape. And we're like, well, what about this other family? No. Uh, there's been very little reporting about them. And I tried to track something down and, and failed. In fact, we were even trying to... Uh, figure out which child it was of his um, when he went to Disney. Who was he taking to Disney? Uh, yes. Originally, we thought, oh, that's Kim Han Sol. Right. It created a really tidy, beautiful narrative arc of like, this is the kid he's taking to Disney, and this yeah. is the kid who ends up escaping. And then we started to do that. Amelia fact-checked me like mm. at 11 o'clock at night one night, and then we had a panic attack and realized, wait, that might not be him. That might be his other kid from his other family. Ah, yeah. is that because the ages don't match up, Amelia? Yes, because Kim Han Sol was born in 95 and the child that went to Disneyland in 2001 was about four. Ah, ah okay, gosh. Um, who did you most want to interview but uh, were unable to either get a hold of or to convince to come on the podcast? Uh, I think I interviewed, I reached out to a lot of people and a lot of people said frankly they said no and i understand that when we spoke to benjamin young he made a really really good point in that because so much reporting at least in the united states about north korea is extremely superficial mm. it kind of almost pokes fun at literally everything every single aspect of the culture yeah um it treats the kims as caricatures and doesn't try to really understand what's going on um, a lot of people just don't even, aren't even going to give you the chance. Uh, mm. So there were a handful of people that I reached out to and either never got anything. I really, really wanted to talk to Bruce Cummings, the, uh, mm -hmm. um, the, the historian out at Chicago, but he, yeah. he declined. And he, um, He's in Seoul this week, and I'm trying desperately to get him on my podcast too, but so okay. far with no, no answers to the email that I've sent him. So <laughs> I, I keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> the, the race is on. If you can get him, let me know. Yeah. Um, and then there was um, 
I feel bad for forgetting his name, but there's a professor out in California who wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning work of uh, fiction who also interviewed the sushi, sushi chef, uh, Kim Jong-un's sushi chef and wrote ah, a story. Kenji Fujimoto, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He interviewed him and got very close with him in mm. his, uh, his life. And I wanted to dive into that detail, but he, yeah. he was so far removed from the story that he decided not to. And I imagine you would have reached out to Adrian Hong? I did, yes. I sent Adrian Hong a message and he decided to decline. Um, mm. Basically, he said he needs some time away from media. He's extremely stressed at the moment about the right. current. Um, he's currently under trial. They uh, have not decided this case yet, whether they should extradite him to Spain or not. Yeah. Um, and he's just like, I think I've done enough. He's just, and we respected that and said, okay. Was that Christopher on? Oh, that was Christopher on. Sorry. Yeah. That was Christopher on. I mixed the two. I did also look for Adrian Hong. And uh, the only way to find Adrian is through his friends. Mm. And I didn't get anywhere with Adrian. Got further mm. with Christopher, but Christopher, we, we respected and left him alone. Yeah. I tried to get uh, Suki Kim to come on the podcast right after that New Yorker piece came out, uh, but she said, mm -hmm. uh, she, sorry, she couldn't talk about it, which is a shame because I'm sure, uh, I mean, she got the, uh, the big scoop of the, uh, of the story, didn't she, uh, by, by interviewing Adrian and getting that out of him? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I assume that Suki has some idea about mm. where he is. Um, at the same time, I really have no interest in outing his location yeah. either. So um, it, it was a shame that we couldn't get him credit to Suki Kim for following all those um, at Crown Trail to get to him. Yeah. Uh, you did manage to get quite a stellar cast of experts uh, to provide interviews and color. Some of them uh, have been on the podcast, on this podcast, I should say. So you had, of course, mm -hmm. Anna Fifield, who was on episode 20 of the NK News podcast. That was before her, her book, uh, The Great Successor, came out and the big scoops about Kim Jong-nam. So I wasn't able to talk to her about that. But you also had uh, Jenny Town, who was more recently on this show in episode 219 and Benjamin Young, a good friend, he used to write for uh, NK News and he's been on two episodes of this podcast, 179 and 226 for our listeners who want to go back and hear that. And also Sandra Fahey, she's been on uh, episode 187. Uh, Bradley Martin, way back episode 76. Uh, we haven't yet had Song Yun Lee of, uh, of Tufts uh, on this uh, podcast yet. But it, I was really surprised to learn that he went to the very same international school in Switzerland as Kim Jong-nam and at the same time, but apparently never met him or never spoke to him. That was interesting. Yeah, he just dropped that very casually in yeah. an email to me. Uh, and I said, no, we need to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, and you had Michael Madden from NK Leadership Watch, who hasn't been on the show yet, and also Sue Kim, uh, former CIA analyst now at RAND. Uh, how did you choose your interview subjects, your experts, and, and what did they bring to the table? We wanted to have a good variety of experts, um, people from the research and analysis world, like Sue Kim, who's at RAND, uh, people who possibly know people in North Korea, um, or have at least been in the country, historians who could speak and contextualize, uh, contextualize things, current people who are enmeshed in policy like Jenny Town, we can speak to what's happening right now. Yeah. We wanted to be able to cover all of just all of those uh, different slices of the North Korean pie. And I will note that actually the scripts were written, uh, or at least the first drafts of them, before these interviews took place, which mm. meant that we knew 
uh, Lucas did the primary interviews, I added questions, but it, it meant that we really knew what information we were looking for and could ask very specific questions mm. based on the expertise that that specific expert was bringing. Now, Amelia, did you, as the executive producer, did you have to, um, or did you have the right to veto any of the guests or say, oh, I'd, I'd rather choose this one than that one? Uh, I didn't do that with the experts just because they know a hell of a lot more than I do. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I think Lucas and I had a general joke that he was the master of the script. I edited heavily, but he generally had the final call. And when it came to the sound, the you know, scoring and the sound design of creating a scene, uh, any any of those kinds of elements that really brought the audio part of it, that was when I was uh, in charge. <laughs> yeah, actually, let's talk a bit about that, uh, about the, the audio side of things, uh, creating the soundscapes. This is something that you've been doing for a while, is it? Yes, I actually was a journalist for many years uh, for radio, essentially local NPR stations here oh. in Atlanta. Um, so I was very aware of how to tell stories, both through interview and um, as well as kind of creating a soundscape uh, where possible. But this was one of the first times where I was creating, even though they are based on fact, you know, obviously we don't have the sound of Kim Jong-nam's mother's footsteps. Mm. So those are, those are fabricated sounds. And that was actually probably the most fun was kind of playing with what we could do with this narration. Yeah. Yeah, because it it's a very different style to, to my own podcast. You know, we do just general straight uh, interviews here, uh, but yours is very much a narrative, almost in some parts like a, like a radio play. Yeah, uh, and I think that's, you know, you could do uh, a, a drier version of the podcast that, than we did. You know, you could have somebody just reading the information, but yeah. you know, especially because true crime is so... Uh, popular here in the US, but I, th I think probably that's true globally um, in terms of podcast. And a lot of times people are listening to podcasts when they're doing something else. Mm. So having that sound, um, you know, accompany these deep historical explanations when we're talking about Confucianism or we're talking about the personality cult, having kind of voice actors come in brings a level of excitement maybe that that might get people who aren't already interested in North Korea to pay more attention. And how did you choose the voice of the podcast, Eden Lee? Um, to be honest, it we when I started working on the podcast, there was a list of people who maybe we would get a journalist or we would get some kind of academic who was an expert. But uh, when I read the scripts, I knew that they were so dynamic in tone that we really needed somebody who could bring out, you know, when something is a little bit tongue in cheek versus mm. when something's quite sad mm. or, or suspenseful. And so in that vein, having an, an actor was the thing that I thought, hey, that, that might be somebody who's flexible enough in their voice. And then on top of that, obviously having somebody who is, you know, of some kind of Korean heritage and would be able to pronounce things correctly, no mm. doubt. Um, but I'm also very passionate about having uh, legitimate representation uh, for these kinds of things. And then personally, I did want a woman. And I think it's because we're so used to these kinds of thrilling stories being told to us by men that I, not to mention, there's so many men in the characters that mm. it was the idea of having a woman as the host would bring that kind of dynamic. So since we're hearing you know, from Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-nam, all of these men, 
that there was a woman telling us the story. Yeah. Did she feed back to you how she felt about the project having done it? I think she had fun. That's that's the just yeah. that I got. Yeah, yeah. I mean, besides the fact that like uh, in studio, we had some hiccups here and there, which Amelia was more present for, like, uh, which that was the running joke. Anytime anything went wrong in production, mm. it's like, oh, North Koreans are after us. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Just Although there was another joke that Eden also uh, brought to our attention, which is, uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm paraphrasing it poorly, but that in South Korea, sometimes when there's a, an album being recorded, if there's a haunting, um, then it becomes incredibly popular. And mm. so Eden's joke was that um, our studio was haunted by a ghost. Ah, and that could help yeah, because yeah. Because our system kept crashing just we'd be in the middle of something and then the soundboard would go down the, the screens would go down everything would go oh. down and the, the studio engineer would be like this has never happened before ah. and i think it happened every single time we were in the studio at least we did one week of recording and then we went back for um pickups and every single time it happened it, it, the same thing happened during pickups as well so it's either haunted or we're being hacked <laughs> yeah yeah or there's probably a reasonable explanation, but that's less fun. Yeah, yeah. Now, what about the music that you used? Is that actually North Korean music that, that opened and closed each show? No, it is not. And that was very much a struggle of mine in the very beginning. Um, I'm very much a, a music person and I had been delving into North Korean music. And there was one song in particular that as soon as I heard it, I knew it should be our theme song. It's a real North Korean song called Where Are You, Dear General? Mm. And it's played on the loudspeakers of Pyongyang every morning. Yep. Uh, the tone of it, the way it has this slow build that kind of hits this choral peak is kind of perfect for the eeriness that, you know, we were trying to bring out as well as just honestly, the development of the opening theme, yep. right? But uh, unfortunately we couldn't officially license it. We did try, this is actually a little bit of a funny story, we did try because that song is streaming on popular music channels like Spotify. Yeah. Um, so I figured there's got to be an avenue outside of North Korea to get our hands on this music. But of course, you have to have the rights of the people who wrote the music. And yeah. so when he reached out to license that song, the reply we got was, sorry, we can't license it because it was written by Kim Jong-un. Uh, well, and, he, and he's a sanctioned individual, so that, that wouldn't be possible. Yes, yeah. but then we, we have a composer who did uh, all of the original music. There are some music that is, you know, not his, but all of the original score is done by a man named Jason Todd Shannon. And so I had sent him, where are you, dear general, telling him that that was the vibe right. that I wanted for the opening theme, for the theme song. Did he use the theremin in his, uh, in his instrumentation, do you know? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Eight episodes to uh, to tell the story of a murder that was uh, heavily covered by the media might seem a bit long, but you really do tell a lot of uh, detail, a lot of backstory going into uh, into cybercrime, into the the palace intrigues. Were there bits that you had to cut to keep it at eight episodes, and how did you decide that? <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, that's the in the world of writing, that's the old chestnut is that you must murder your darlings. Yeah. Uh, and no matter how much you love a piece of writing or a paragraph or a page, if it has to go, it has to go. And we were pretty centered on making sure that this was generally in the ballpark between 40 to 50 minutes long. So there were some cuts here and there. 
frankly, um, all of the parts that I love made it in. Mm. I don't know if that's true for Amelia. <laughs> I think most of the things that we had to cut just, you know, in favor of making an episode shorter and therefore maybe more digestible were just the millions of stories that you can tell, you know, especially stories from our experts, stories that Lucas had written. I remember Sandra Fahey told us a story about these women in a prison camp, or I don't, they may not have been women, yeah. in a prison camp who uh, were caught eating weeds and the guard made them eat the whole weeds with the soil that mm -hmm. had been uh, had human excrement in it. And, you know, those kinds of stories obviously amplify the stakes of when we're saying how brutal the prison camps are, that gives you a, a, a really specific example. But at the end of the day, there's a million of those stories yeah. and yeah. you have to figure out where to cut. Yeah, I do. I do recall one now we were there was a section in the very beginning of the podcast where we're essentially explaining this concept of the hermit kingdom and why it's really not all that true that, you know, North Korea has a much more international reach than most people give it credit for. And um, one of the examples that we did have to cut, we kind of had a little sidebar about the restaurant called Pyongyang, which the North Korea has this chain of restaurants that are just spread across the world. And yeah. they even had one briefly in, uh, I believe it was Amsterdam. Uh, yeah. I, I just absolutely love this fact that you could go to a North Korean restaurant run by the state in somewhere in Europe. Uh, yeah. But that ended up on the cutting room floor. As a fellow podcaster, I have to ask one question. Why was Michael Madden from NK Leadership Watch using a burner phone? I've recorded over 200 podcasts, some of them uh, in person, some over the phone and some via Zoom, but no one's ever used a burner phone in talking about North Korea. Uh, and in some cases, when we use Zoom or even with a phone, the, the audio is, it, you know, it's less than optimal. And sometimes we even have to make the tough call not to publish an interview or to redo the whole thing because of sound quality. Uh, we've only ever once had an actor read out the answers of an interviewee, but that was because the original interviewee was done in German and the podcast is all in English. Was it a difficult decision to have an actor read Mike Madden's answers out loud rather than re-record the interview via Zoom or some other method? You have no idea how hard it was. <laughs> there was so much back and forth when it came to that. Um, it was already hard to get Michael Madden on the line. And once we had him, then we did have him for a significant amount of time in two different locations. Yeah. One where there was significant traffic noise in the background. And so he would be in the middle of a salient point and mm. then a, a truck would drive by. Uh, and then his second location, I don't know if it was just poor service or what, but basically his volume would be very loud and then very quiet. And we sent this audio to so many audio professionals to try and clean it up, to yeah. extract the original, even if it was a little shaky, to try and use his original voice. We sent it, I think, to three different people to try and fix it. And, you know, I think the most disappointing part is that probably 75 to 80 percent of his audio would have been uh, understandable. Mm. But it was the other 20 percent that yeah. we didn't know what to do with when it is, you know, he's the only one who says that kind of thing. Right. And we opted to go for the cleaner audio just because of the fact that, as I said before, you know, if people are kind of listening to a podcast while they're cooking dinner, yeah. I don't want them struggling to hear what the person is saying. Yeah, at the end of the day, the number one priority is to be understood. Um, and he said things that were so important and so unique to him that we had to have somebody help us there, so. Was he using a burner phone because he believed the North Koreans might be hacking into his real phone? 
<laughs> You'd have to ask Michael about that. I, I can't speak for him. Okay. He did say, I don't know who's on my phone these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it may be multiple sources that he's worried of about. Hmm. Wow. Uh, I I enjoyed listening to the the narrative experience and the uh, especially the expressive uh, actors reading of of Eden Lee, um, uh, which you you went into some detail about. She did a great job there. Uh, but sometimes with the vignettes, with the recreations, it made me wonder whether there were any compromises made in terms of rigor or accuracy in favor of dramatic tension and storytelling. So. I think Lucas will absolutely be able to speak to some of this. Everything that Lucas wrote in the original is was actually a direct line that he had pulled from his research. Um, there was, if there were, uh, you know, fabricated lines, they were generally, you know, minimal. Uh, for example, obviously, I don't know what the Japanese authorities said to Kim Jong Nam in the airport, but I, yeah. I can imagine he they asked for his passport. And so that's what we had that person say. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's obviously in these kinds of things, not only are you playing with not having the scene in front of you, but you're also playing with time. Mm. The death scene of Kim Jong-nam, for example, we did make it quite long in terms of trying to draw it out, but it de definitely took longer than it does in the podcast, you know? Mm. So you have to condense these things. Yeah. And for that very reason, you could argue that it's not, you know, up to snuff in terms of accuracy, but we did the best we could, for sure. Oh, well, the, the, the example that I was thinking of was uh, the, the very exhaustively detailed death of Kim Jong-il's younger brother, Shura, in a murky lagoon. Uh, there was right. such detail given there about the dunking once and the dunking twice and the dunking again, and then the body floating off. Uh, and then I, I found myself wondering, where does that come from? Only an eyewitness or the person themselves could, could know these things. Is that based on inference or do we actually have eyewitness accounts of things like that? So for, yeah, that case is very difficult because that came from a defector testimony um, that was written back in the 80s uh, that was published in South Korea. And as you know, with anything that comes out of the mouth of a defector, you do have to kind of squint your eyes at it a little bit and question whether it's completely accurate or true because defectors tend to have, you know, a motive and a slant and I completely understand why they might. Um, but that's the source where it came from. It, there's, there's a point to be said about like, um, the source said that he was pushed into the water multiple times. Was it two? Was it four? Was it six? When you're trying to create a scene, um, that uh, that you can actually see in your mind. At some point, you have to make a decision. Mm. I think we chose like three. I mean, anything more than that, then it just becomes kind of bad storytelling, as it were. Um, but when it comes to something like that, where you're creating a scene, I want to stay. I want to have as much fidelity to the source as possible. Um, how reliable that source is, because it's a defector. Not quite sure, which is why we say in that scene, this is according to a defector's testimony. Yeah. If there are any direct quotes coming out of Kim Jong-il's mouth or Kim Jong-nam's mouth, those are direct quotes as cited by somebody. All of that has a source. And every single episode, and some episodes, but um, every single episode was leafed over by a fact checker. Um, they spent about two months digging into the facts to make sure that there was backup to mm. everything that we wrote. And some episodes were double fact-checked as mm -hmm. well because there was so much. It's a 45,000 word script. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, it takes a long time to fact check stuff because there are multiple facts in just a single sentence. Um, so I'm confident in the work they did. At the same time, sometimes things do slip through the cracks. So if there are little errors here and there, it, it, that's certainly a possibility. Right, but you've gone through the process, uh, the fact-checking. Uh, I, I remember exactly. listening to the, the, the end of the eighth episode, two names were mentioned. I've forgotten them already. They weren't people I'd heard of, but you've got two, two fact-checkers named there. So you've, you've done the, yep. uh, the process, yeah. Austin Thompson and Aaron Blakemore were our two fact-checkers, and they did. They poured over it with a fine-toothed comb. Um, and that's the thing that's always difficult with reporting, as you've, as we already said, with reporting on North Korea is mm. there are so many stories coming out of it. And as a good journalist, you want to corroborate it. You know, you want to triangulate on this information and like get, get it confirmed independently from some other people. Yeah. And in most normal places, that's a possibility. Yeah. And in North Korea, it's just not, it's that information is just sealed. And so you kind of have to take a leap of faith and go, you know, does this set off my BS meter or yeah. not? Um, and then how do I want to present this story? Like, so in the case of when it's from a defector, make it clear that it's from a defector. Try to make it clear here and there where the source is coming from. I want to go back for a moment to, uh, to the death. Uh, we know how and where Kim Jong-nam died mm -hmm. because so much of it was caught on camera. Uh, but it, we, it's still hard to work out exactly why. Now, in your podcast, you deal with some competing theories. Ultimately, what do you believe was the motive for his death? Hmm. I mean, I think, I don't think it's any one motive. I really do believe that a lot of the theories that we suggest are reasons and it just piled up. Hmm. I, I certainly believe that him talking poorly about his brother and about the regime to a Japanese journalist on the record did him literally no favors. Um, if they were thinking about it, that was probably, in my opinion, that was probably the tipping point. Um, Michael Madden says that him talking to the CIA didn't even matter at that point, that uh, Kim Jong-un just wanted him out of the picture. Uh, so the CIA thing might have been just a cherry on top of what was already a death sentence. Mm. Um, his relationship with uh, Jinx on tech, you know, he was clearly very close with his uncle. Um, and we all know what happened to his uncle. So, you know, just being part of that circle also didn't help in that he had this information about uh, that when he was living in Macau, how he had um, all of these gambling websites and was procuring money and equipment that way uh, and how people in the regime, possibly not Kim Jong-un, but people high up actually wanted that and wanted to take it from him and basically put that on their own hit list. I think all of them are extremely plausible, but I think the most plausible or the one that kicked it off is just him talking poorly about the rest of his family. What, uh, what's still unknown for you about the death of Kim Jong-nam and the circumstances around it? Hmm. That's a good question. I would like, yeah, I would like to know what they did with the body mm. um, when it returned. I found it just such a slap in the face when his body was returned on the same plane as the men who purportedly helped his murder. That these men who had been hiding out in the embassy of North Korea in Malaysia were essentially swapped and they were just sitting above the cargo hold, right mm. above his body, with no repercussions whatsoever, with no justice whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's one of those things that if you were writing fiction, I don't, people would say that's a little on the nose, right? but it actually happened. 
Now, these weren't the men who actually primed the women and gave them the VX agent, are they? They're, they're people who were in some kind of ancillary role, because I believe the, the men themselves who were at the airport, they left immediately as, as soon as, as Kim Jong-nam was dead, right? The, the two men who were hiding in the embassy were the ones who whisked them through security to get mm. on their flights. So they, they weren't involved in, in training the women, but mm. they were certainly involved in, in helping the, the real assassins escape. Right. Gosh, yeah, that, that is a, uh, quite a, a striking image of them uh, flying back, as you say, above the cargo hold that held his body. And then we don't know uh, what they did with Kim Jong-nam's body. Presumably, he wasn't given uh, state honors. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> Presumably. And isn't, isn't buried at the, uh, at the National Martyrs Ceremony. You know, uh, I think also for me, the question I would have around Kim Jong-nam's death is obviously if he had VX nerve agent antidote in his bag mm. and he potentially saw this coming, what were the conversations with his families like? You know, obviously he's multiple families about what happens when I go, you know, every family has to have those conversations when their parents may be getting old, mm. but Kim Jong-nam may have had to have those kinds of conversations when they were much younger. Yeah, yeah, that's that's... It's hard to imagine, or it could be one of those things that you put off and, and just hope it doesn't come to that. You know, you just have a, a, a letter in a safe deposit box or something. <laughs> well, man, that would have been a great ending to the, to the podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> Are there any uh, wider implications that come from this story, as far as you can see? Yeah, in the fact that, you know, nobody was punished. Mm. North, North Korea wasn't punished. Immediately after this, what, six, a couple months later, uh, Trump had that uh, meeting in Singapore with Kim Jong-un, and they started exchanging letters. And it, just there were no repercussions whatsoever for committing a, an assassination on foreign soil. Mm. Like, yeah, they, they slapped their wrist at first for a couple months. Malaysia slapped their wrist, then they went back. And then China slapped the wrist for a little bit and then they held back. And then everyone just kind of forgot about it. Mm. And I think it's more of an implication of the international stage, what that means, than it is North Korea. Because I think North yeah. Korea won. Yeah. You know, yeah. they had their motive. They made the, they killed this guy and they weren't punished for it. And I can embolden other nations to see that, hey, maybe I can get away with something as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly affected the, uh, immediate relationship between North Korea and Malaysia for a bit. I mean, the, there were Malaysian uh, diplomats held hostage in Pyongyang effectively for a while until the, the two North Korean men were allowed to leave. But I think it's more, I mean, apart from COVID hitting uh, in between, mm. the relationship's more or less gone back to normal, hasn't it? Yeah. You know, the story also reminds me of uh, the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington mm. Post writer yeah. who was killed while visiting a consulate in Turkey by Saudi Arabia and how there was a lot of talk and a lot of discussion, but also not a lot done. And I don't know what the message is that like, okay, you can, you can murder a journalist and really have nothing happen to you. Yeah. At least the people who or order the hit, you know, it, it was the same situation with uh, Kim Jong-nam. Yeah. I think there's a quote that we say in, in, I, I forget who, it, who said it originally, but Malaysia considered the, you know, relationship with North Korea to be more important than justice for one person. Mm. And I think that extends to these other situations as well. What story are you planning to turn into a future podcast series or are you already working on something now? <laughs> for both of us, I know we're both working on separate things and I think that's confidential information, but it will not be something that uh, 
puts our lives at risk. (laughs) (laughs) You won't need a burner phone. No, no burner phones over here anymore. Well, I want to thank you once again, Amelia Brock and Lucas Riley, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. And to our listeners, once again, you can check out their podcast, Big Brother, North Korea's Forgotten Prince. All eight episodes are up on the internet, and we'll put a link in the show notes to the podcast. You can follow Amelia Brock on Twitter at Amelia Brock, one word. And Lucas Riley, I couldn't find you on Twitter, Lucas, but you've got a website, lucasriley.com. We'll put that on the, uh, the show notes. Do you have a Twitter as well? I do, yeah. It's at lucasriley1 on Twitter. At lucasriley1 on Twitter. Okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. If you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks again and listen again next time. <laughs>